You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Coach Jen from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kent, Texas. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for December 7th, episode 3318. Good morning, horse world. What is your favorite day of the week? You never stop learning. You never stop understanding. It's more in depth than just riding a horse. Knowing that for the rest of my life I could work on this and, and I'll never stop learning. Welcome back, Mary. Thanks for having me. Yay! I always look forward to the, the show each month because we get to geek out on all things horse training. And this month we have a guest. Tick Maynard is going to be here. He is a competitor at this year's 2024 Road to the Horse. And if you're not familiar with Tick Maynard, he is a Canadian three-day event rider. And he has competed up to the highest levels. And he comes down to Florida every winter. And sometimes he comes to Aiken. But he's a little bit outside the box because tick also uses a lot of training techniques that people in the western realms and the natural horsemanship realms might be familiar with so he's a really interesting writer and author of the book in the middle are the horsemen just came out on audio or, or will be coming out on audio very shortly so we're going to talk to him a little bit later in the show but at the beginning of the show regular listeners know the first thing we do thing we do is jump into Mary's monthly training tip. And of course, I always ask Mary, what's the inspiration for your training tip and what is it? So the inspiration for the training tip is came from a training horse that I'm working with right now. He is a Gypsy Vanner Fjord Cross. Whoa! Um, and he is adorable. He's about as wide as he is tall. Is he fuzzy um, all over? Is he super fuzzy? He is, and he's got feathers, and he's a he's such a good little pony. I, I've fallen in love with him already. Um, and so he's already had a good solid foundation of training. He just needs a little touch up here and there. And one of the things that the owner wanted me to work on is neck reining. Um, and that's something in the Western world that is uh, often seen uh, in more advanced horses where you're riding one-handed and the horse generally works off of a signal. They feel the rein lay across their neck and then they go that direction that the rein is signaling them to go. And neck reining can seem like a daunting thing to teach. And there's a little bit of a misconception that I found out there of you need a special bit to teach neck reining, or it takes years and years to teach it. Um, and it's actually one of the easiest things I teach. Um, because you're using something the horse already knows how to do or should already know how to do, which is just steer, uh, go the direction I'm asking you to go. And you're just kind of putting a new cue to it. Um, 
And, you know, the, the neck reining, of course, comes in handy uh, when you're doing Western disciplines like roping or you're going to work a gate or you're going to drag something with your lariat and you need that free hand available. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the training tip. Um, so what I'm doing with this horse, uh, I have him for uh, probably going to have him for about 60 days of training and he's actually already neck reining really well. Um, uh, you don't need a special bit. You don't have to go out and get a curb bit to do it. Um, you know, typically you show in a curb bit when you're riding one-handed, but if you're just riding around at home, you can neck rein in a hackamore, you can neck rein uh, in a snaffle. And so I'm riding him in a snaffle. Um, so I made sure initially that if I uh, direct reined him. So like if I take my left hand and I draw his nose to the left, that he follows his nose and he steers to the left and vice versa. And he did that pretty well. I also made sure that he um, understands the leg cues that I'm using in conjunction with the steering. So if I'm steering to the left, I tip his nose to the left with my left hand. And then I put my right leg on him by the shoulder to kind of push the shoulder over. I'm not physically pushing him over. It's just a support cue to say, move your shoulder away from the leg cue. Um, so I checked all of that out with him the first week or so of riding, and he does that really well. And so when they do steer, they're steering pretty good for you. Um, the only thing that I will really do to start neck reining is I will start bringing my outside rein with my direct rein. So I kind of use both of my hands in unison when I start to teach a neck rein. So I tip his, like if I'm going to, I'll, I'll tip his nose to the left with my left rein, but then I'll also lift my right rein and kind of move it across his neck. So, and then I will use my leg cue as well. And I'll do that going left and right and left and right, where anytime I change directions. I will bring both of my hands up and over. And it's I, I kind of act like my hands are tied together. Uh, like maybe I have handcuffs on my hands or something. And I just lift both my hands, bring them across. And once he follows the direction, then I release. Because that's what's going to teach him. So as soon as he's steering the direction that I want him to go, I give him a loose rein again and let him know, good, you did it. And now we're going to go off in a new direction. So the release is really going to show the horse that he did the correct thing. Um, so as I do this, it's going to start uh, clicking. He will start equating the feeling of that indirect rein laying across his neck with steering in that direction. Um, so as he uh, gets better and better, I will stop using my inside rein so much um, and uh, it, it just kind of happens easily and naturally over time. And once they're getting that pretty well to where I feel like I'm not having to really pull him around with that inside rein, um, from there, then I'll just put the reins in one hand and I'll just start neck reining. If, if I go to neck rein and he doesn't listen, I can always put my, I can put two hands back on the reins and say, nope, I wanted you to go this direction. I'll remind him a couple of times, but then I'll just go back to neck reining. And especially in the lower gates, if, you know, at the beginning of my ride, if I'm just walking around on a loose rein, I'll just start neck reining. If again, if he doesn't get it, no big deal. I'll go back to two hands, help him figure it out. And then I'm always going to be trying to get back to riding one-handed. And if you just sort of get in the habit of that every day, 
um, they pick it up before you even know it. I've done Garrocha clinics before. So that's where you're riding with the 14 foot long wood pole and you have to ride one handed to do that. And um, I've had people write me um, ahead of time saying, I want to do this clinic, but I can't neck rein. I'm like, it's okay. We'll, we'll do a little bit of that. And it usually takes like one afternoon of practice. And those horses are riding one handed easily by the end of the clinic. I think people think that teaching re- neck reining is complex because you so often see pictures and videos and experience it yourself where you're at- attempting to steer the horse one-handed neck reining. And in that particular moment, you're asking the horse to turn in a way that maybe he doesn't really want to. You want to turn away from his best buddy and pal who's going the opposite direction. So he throws his head up and you you have your hand going way over to nine o'clock, you know, and you assume that there's something complex about it when in fact um, the better option is no, you just, if he's not turning when you move your hand a little bit, you take the rein and you direct rein him and then you go off again. For a rider who regularly steers in that fashion, in other words, they attempt to turn left and their hand has to move way across the horse and the head goes up and the nose turns to the opposite direction in order to get that turn to happen. I don't ride a lot of horses neck reining all the time. So I'm asking what I might consider a stupid question, but I'm not going to ask it. Is that basically unteaching the horse to neck rein when they steer like that all the time? Yeah. So, um, and that, that's a common pitfall in, in any kind of riding is when you get, when you go right to pulling on the horse is kind of your first cue. You're missing all this opportunity to prepare the horse for what you're going to do. So when I neck rein, I always want to be really slow with my hands and I'm very purposeful of I'm, I'm going to lift my hands up off your neck and I'm going to slowly draw them across. And if you're not immediately following that direction, I've got my leg to come in and help you, but I give them all of this opportunity to figure it out. If I get to where I'm pulling on them as hard as I can, and they're not going that direction, then I need to go back and and go back to two hands and fix it. And then as soon as they finally uh, figure out to go that direction, I need to make sure to release big time, give them that loose rein and say, okay, you finally made it. So sometimes they're going to get a little stuck like that. And I, I don't, I'm not going to try and pull harder. I'm going to do what I can do to get the message across. So that might mean go back to two hands and really direct the nose where you want to go. Use a little bit more leg. And once you get it happening, release, 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 and let them know, hey, you did a really good job. Now, the next turn I make, I know that maybe the horse is still not going to be really responsive. I'm still going to like use my reins as if he's this super broke, really well-tuned horse and I'm going to just signal with the reins and then I'm going to draw a little bit more and a little bit more, use a little bit more leg. And then when he figures it out, release. Um, Also, this is something that I'm going to work on in the walk for quite a long time because that's going to be much easier to teach him than if I just try and gallop off 
and neckering at the gallop. So if I have a horse that's difficult to steer, I'm going to stay in that walk and really work on that steering and really rewarding him when he figures out the answer. Um, and th- once we get a good solid foundation of I've gotten that done right several times in a row, now I can start thinking about trotting and you know just work my way up the gates. There we go. Well, that's that's really interesting. And I'm always surprised, having ridden English 99.9% of my life, how you can take a horse who you might consider a finished horse, a well-trained horse that has never been neck reined in his life, and you ride them on the buckle, which is what English folks refer to when they ride on a completely loose rein. Riding on the buckle is, that term is used because in the center of a set of English lanes, reins, there's a buckle. You can take that rein and that buckle. You just pick it up and you gently lay the rein across the horse's withers. And eight times out of 10, the horse turns. Even though he's never been trained, I'm going to use my air quotes, never been trained to neck rein because the whole process of neck reining also involves the rest of your body. Just like if you direct rein a horse and you do your, your inside hand uses a direct rein, but every other part of your body does everything wrong, that direct rein is not going to work really great. Just the same thing yeah. with neck rein, except it's a little more amplified. If you do only a few things wrong with the rest of your body, the neck rein's not going to work. I think it uh, requires a slightly higher level of attention to your your entire body and your position and all the rest of your aids versus direct reining. Well, there's so many cues that you you can give the horse to really help them figure it out. And there's a lot of unconscious cues that are going on there. I am a firm believer that intention makes a big difference. If I look where I'm going to go and I have, I just picture in my head where that horse is going to go. I truly believe that my body is going to make thousands of tiny minute changes that those horses can very much read, you know, um, so when I'm when I'm steering around first, it seems silly, but I'm gonna look where I'm gonna steer because when I look, that's changing the way my head sits on my shoulders and my shoulders are gonna twist and my body's gonna slightly twist. That horse will definitely feel that. And I'll make it a habit instead of I'm just gonna pull you where I want it to go. I, first I'm gonna look. And then I'm gonna you know, start, um, maybe I'll open my inside leg a little bit, like give them kind of open the door for them to step across and go that direction. I'm not going to like take it way, way off his side, but I'm just going to, you know, lift it slightly off of his side. Um, I'll add in a little outside leg to help steer him where I want him to go. And then when I do bring my hand into the equation and bring that rain aid, again, I'm just very lightly drawing it. And I want to give him every opportunity to follow that feel. And then if he doesn't, I can always pick up on that direct rein and tip his nose and say, that's where I need you to go. But every time I ask, I'm going to go all the way back to what's the, what's the least amount I can do to get this through to the horse. There we go. Good stuff. And right after we hear from today's sponsor, we're going to have Tick Maynard on. Some people don't think horses and people communicate. We call those people not horse people. Not horse people don't know you and your horse share a unique bond. Or that your horse knows you know they like your dogs. But not so much the barking. At Sentinel Horse Nutrition, we don't knock not horse people. We're too busy focusing on horse people's horses. 
With extruded nugget feeds for exceptional nutrition and formulas for every need, our wide choice of feeds makes it easy to find the fit for your horse's health. Find theirs at FeedSentinel.com. Tick Maynard has competed at the highest levels in multiple disciplines, including modern pentathlon, tetrathlon, the retired racehorse project thoroughbred makeover, and in three-day eventing, where he competed at multiple World Cups, World Championships, and at the 2007 Pan Am Games in Rio. Tick recently published his first book, In the Middle Are the Horsemen. Hey, Tick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so we were talking the other day about actually cut. I want to start all over again. I talked about editing and now I'm an idiot about saying the right thing at the right time. <laughs> do you no want problem. to do that again? <laughs> no problem. I'm happy to work okay. with whatever. Okay. I'm just going to start right back in there. Um, so one of the big things that you've got coming up actually in I think just a few short months is Road to the Horse. Um, how excited are you to be a competitor in Road to the Horse this year, next year? Well, I I don't know if excited is exactly the the right word. Uh, <laughs> sometimes when people, you know, people are going cross country, they uh, they say their horse is excited when actually there's a, quite a bit of tension or anxiety in there or worry about it. Uh, so it all depends on, I guess, how you define the word excited. I mean, I'm definitely um, glad I signed up. I, I think it's going to be a big ask of me, a big challenge for my skill set and what I'm comfortable doing. I think I'm going to be pretty far out of my comfort zone if I had to compete right now. But I've got a plan to get ready. And um, I'm trying to talk to people that have done it before. And, you know, I'd be curious your thoughts on it and trying to figure out you know, where to focus my time and, and what mistakes that I can avoid that other people have made. Ooh, awesome. Yeah. Fortuitous. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I know to a small a fraction of probably what you're going through right now. Um, I was involved uh, in the competition years back um, when they first brought out the wild card challenge. And back then it was a little bit different. Um, we actually took a sixes horse home, uh, one of the Remuda coats home and we trained it for a year. And then we would, we came back to the next road of the horse. And then we competed against each other. It was me and like five or six other trainers. And then whoever won that competition then got to immediately go in the round pen and start a colt. So it was out of the frying pan into the fire. And, um, so the whole year I'm thinking, I could be in that round pin. So you all see, even though there's six of us going against each other, only one's going to get that spot. You still have to prepare because if you win, you yeah. get into the round pin. And so I, I had the same feelings of awesome opportunity. This is going to be so great, but oh my God, what did I do? And I'm terrified. And this is <laughs> exactly not how, yeah, it's not how 99% of the world starts Colts, you know, yeah. like just casually yeah. in front of 3000 people, no big deal. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and on the internet. And so, yeah. um, so yeah. Um, one of the things that I know I did a lot of prep work and rode with trainers who had been in road to the horse and, you know, bought up all the DVDs I could and watched them all. And I had been several years prior. Um, and so I know that you definitely want to have a lot of prep work involved. Um, what kind of, uh, what kind of stuff have you been doing over the year? What's your, what's your game plan to get ready? So my game plan right now is to try to start about 
one to two horses a month. I'm trying to find horses that are specific to that competition as possible. So for example, ideally completely unstarted three-year-old gelding quarter horses. Now it's not always easy to find that. So I've got to, uh, you know, have a horse that's older or younger or a filly or, you know, only part quarter horse or not quarter horse or whatever, but that's what I'm trying to find. And then at least one of those times I'm trying to start the horse with, um, with somebody watching me with sort of a coach or a mentor or a trainer where they can watch me start the horse and give some comments and some feedback, depending on, on how comfortable they are, uh, kind of telling me what to do. And I'm trying to go really out of my comfort zone with learning new things and and really trying to do whatever they tell me to do, even if normally I would do things differently. And I'm going to try to do that all the way through March. And then once I hit March 1st and the competitions at the end of March, I'm going to try to figure out how I want to do it and really only practice the ways that I'm going to do it on the day and make those things really solid. So it's like going out of my comfort zone until March and then really trying to solidify exactly how I'm going to do it. I think that's really smart because, you know, obviously you do want to get out of your comfort zone. Um, this is a new and novel way to start a horse for many people. Um, so you are going to get thrown out of your comfort zone and, and, you know, you want to be open to advice and everything. And I, I think it's smart of you then beforehand. Okay. Now we're going back into my wheelhouse. This is how I feel good doing this because, you know, in the end, you're not going to have anyone on the outside of them. You will have a pen wrangler, but they can't, you know, tell you what to do. Yeah. Um, so it, it really does all come down to you and your gut and your instincts in that moment. Um, weirdly enough, I have, I have done quite a few um, like public cold starting in front of people, both when I worked for people and I've done some competitions and stuff, but for some reason um, I'll get nervous up until that point. And then when I'm in the round pen, it's like, oh, not a problem. Um, it's It gets easier. I don't know if it's like there's so much going on that it's easier to kind of go into your little bubble and just be you and the horse. Um, and I think the horses really feel that too. It, it's it, You would think that being kind of out in, in this you know big arena, all these people, the horses would be more nervous. But I think they really lock into the person who's at the end of the lead rope because you're sort of both in it together. And the horse is like, well, I guess it's you. I guess I have to trust you. <laughs> um, uh, the other thing about Road to the Horse that's really challenging, on top of we're going to try and start a horse within a few hours, is it seems like every year they throw in kind of different and new challenges. They'll change up the rules um, you know, a little bit every year. Like you used to not be able to have a saddle horse. Now you can. Sometimes it's been two colts and it's, you know, so they really kind of make it challenging and different every year. And I haven't kept up with the competition this coming year. Um, but is there anything like that this year? Are you starting one or two colts or anything different that they're doing for the competitors? So in 2024, the the main draw will be similar to how they've done it before. They'll have four competitors, three that they've announced, and one will be the winner of the wild card spot. And uh, each of us is starting one horse. Uh, we are allowed to have a saddle horse if we want. We are allowed to ride out of the round pen into the main arena for a certain number of minutes, maybe 10 minutes if we want to. I think the biggest difference, the biggest sort of uh, interesting thing they're doing this year is that the wild card spot will be Thursday and Friday, and the winner of it will go directly into the main event Friday afternoon. 
And also for the wild cards, they're doing, I think for one of the first times ever, or at least in a long time, they're going to use Phillies instead of Colts or Mares, um, which will, you know, depending on who you talk to, that could change it up a little bit or a lot, depending on on whether you think Mares are either more... um, I don't know what the word is, unpredictable or difficult than a than a gelding. And then the other thing that they're doing is all three wild cards, three or four wild cards that they've invited are past pen wranglers. So John Barr is going to be the main person and Pat Pirelli is going to be his pen wrangler. And oh, so JD they switched Wilcox, it backwards. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So JD Wilcox is going to be the the pen wrangler and Mike Major, who won last or sorry, he's going to be the main person. And Mike Major, who won last year, is going to be his pen wrangler. And Brandy Lyons, who has competed, is going to be the pen wrangler for her person. So they they switched it up, which is kind of a cool idea. Yeah, I knew that they were having the pen wranglers be the wild cards, but I did not know that their uh, mentor, so to speak, were going to be the pen wranglers. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I really it. like that idea. Yeah. yeah. Um, and those guys, I, I was doing a quick run through of the competitors. They look, it's going to both in the competitors and the wild card, it's going to be pretty, uh, um, pretty competitive. And from what <laughs> yeah. I see, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. at a glance, I think you might be the only one that has a mostly English background, you know, like the three day eventing and dressage and, um, do you think coming from that background compared to most of these guys, I think are, are Western riders. Um, do you think that's going to give you uh, any kind of leg up on the competition or any kind of advantage? Um, you know, I, I don't think necessarily, I think everybody's kind of got their own strengths and weaknesses and their own background. Um, you know, I think, I think, you know, whether you're competing in English or, or Western, I think it's uh, definitely helpful to have a, a background of competing, you know, use that, that you're used to being in front of a crowd. Um, you know, for some people, maybe you've started thousands of Colts, but you've never done it in front of a crowd. I think that can be pretty intimidating. So I'm ho- hoping that there will be some things to do specifically with competing that are going to work in my favor. Uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it all comes down to, you know, first of all, how good is your your ability to read a horse and your skill set? And then I think this the the other fifty one percent of it is how well you keep your cool in that pressure situation. You know, with the prize money and the judges and the cameras and the crowd and the clock counting down above you. I think you know I've I've watched quite a few years now, and it's it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh... It's definitely tough. And and I know for sure it's it's tough watching. I can only imagine what it's like to be in that particular round pen. Um but yeah, that that's a uh, that's something I think we're all gonna be really excited to see. And uh I hope that um the prep work keeps going well. This is kind of a good time of year if you wanna get on some western type horses because you know, I know all the cutters and rainers and all the western performance guys are going to be starting all their colts come January. So um hopefully you can get a number of good colts to um to get started. All I um, want to know is are you gonna wear a cowboy hat? Yeah you know, that's all I want to know. I I would say <laughs> there's a 90% chance I'm gonna wear a helmet the whole time. <laughs> well, you know, they make the helmet with the cowboy hat on top of it, remember? 
Yeah, I'm, de I'm definitely not going <laughs> to. Not <wait>. going there. <laughs> <laughs> and I never thought about that, but but you mentioned about one of the many, many layers of this competition is the competitor's ability to focus and do a job with the pressure of the crowd there. And despite the fact that you've not done cult starting competitions before, giant crowds of cheering people are no stranger to you because every time you do a big event, you have tens of thousands of people screaming and yelling, plus dogs barking and getting loose. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if there's tens of thousands, but there's, you definitely have to get used to being in front of a crowd for sure. Well, yeah, yeah, the five stars have tens of thousands. Let's not for dressage, yeah, that's true. no. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> now, that's for true. the only the only time I've ever gone to Road to the Horse where there were competitors there that primarily worked in the English disciplines was when the two Australian gals were there whose name escaped me. I apologize. And they brought all of their requisite tack with them. Whenever so you it's uh it's vicky wilson from new zealand thank she, you she's a show jumper yeah and there we and, go. uh she it was she competed three years and her sister and her dad came to support her she's she has two other sisters and they're quite well known in new zealand and in various parts of the world for what they do um yeah. they were a big but, hit with the crowd yeah. yeah yeah they were do you have you put any thought thus far into what equipment is going to be in your kit yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to have a lot of the stuff that you guys have seen, you know, regular halters, rope halters, shorter ropes, longer ropes, um, flags, sticks. I'm going to try to be, you know, have a plan, but try to be prepared for any situation. The people that I've seen that have done the best in this competition have been the ones that have gone in and have been able to change their plan almost immediately and in the moment, depending on what that horse needs. And I think it's a difficult thing to do you know it's much easier to go in with a plan and stick to your plan but uh you know chris cox from texas is a is a great example you know he's done it four times and each time of doing it seen him do it i think he started his horse in a, in a different way one time he went in and he just waited for the horse to come to him another time he went in and he got the horse moving right away off of the flag another time he went in and he started the horse off another horse and i really think that's not just like him happening to do that i think he's reading in the moment what that horse uh how he's how he's been able to make the biggest impact on that on that horse on that day one of yeah. the things that he said um years ago at a demo that really has stayed with me is it was at some expo he's starting a cult and he says if you come back next year and i'm still doing the same thing then i'm you know you need to go look for someone else because i'm always changing and uh i to me i think as far as road to the horse goes especially he's the best that's ever done it you know he i don't think he ever lost and um i think you're exactly right he changes it up he reads the horse and i i've seen some people lose it the uh, the competition on day one because they were so dogmatic of this is my program and this is what i do with every horse and you know i saw a competitor go into the pen and the horse was like walking up toward him like hey i want to connect with you but because this guy's program was to immediately round pin, yeah. he like immediately like blanked out that, that connection. He missed that then, opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And then couldn't catch the horse the whole first session. And yeah. 
it's it can be really tough. And and I've seen some guys go in the round pen that, in my opinion, as far as cult starting goes, were the best cult starters that I could think of in the country. And they, you know, where they kind of lost out is this is half horsemanship. It, it's it's hor- it's very much about horsemanship and connecting with the horse and and doing that. But then it's also half a competition, and it it does have some rules that you have to go by. You know, one competitor I know was you know got so much done with their colt, but then at that year you couldn't get out of the round pen until it was the the last round, and so then they. They kind of didn't know what to do with their colt the rest of the time. So the colt kind of got real stale. And so you really have to think about, okay, am I on schedule? Do I, you know, when do I need to give this animal a break? Because it's different than what I would be doing at home. Maybe at home I'd be done for today and I'd just put the horse back in the barn. But I have to figure out how to time everything so that when we are in the the final round, this is the best this colt has. And, you know, I haven't lost any of those opportunities with that horse. So it's going to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting watching previous years and watching where people, you know, whether it's an accumulation of small mistakes that allow them to not do well, or it's one big mistake. And, and also for the people that do well, it, it's, it, it's usually an accumulation of smaller things. I would, I would think occasionally it's like they miss one big moment, like a horse offering a feel or like really pushing hard in an obstacle when they should have backed off. Uh, but I've learned a lot from watching it. And there's, you know, there's an argument that, that people, um, you know, that it encourages people to go too fast with horses. But uh, if you're a good learner, like if you're a good student of of watching people and horses, you can learn a lot and you can learn as much from mistakes that people make as as from when they do well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And every year that I've gone to see it, usually there's like one thing that I'll hook onto something a trainer did that I thought, oh my gosh, that was a great idea. And yeah, I take it home and I add it to my program. It doesn't mean that I'm starting all my colts in three hours. It's just man, I really liked, like, I remember one year, uh, actually it was the, uh, year we did the wild card when Jim Anderson won it. I don't know if it was the first or second year he won it, but, um, he had taught his saddle horse how to like side pass up to another horse and ride at Liberty. And so when he got on his Colt, his saddle horse knew to stick right by his colt and the colt had like the comfort of being next to the saddle horse and the saddle horse could kind of lead the way and get the colt moving out and things like that just made me go oh man that is the best idea i've ever seen and i can't wait to go home and use it and i hope the audience uh can get as much you know uh worthwhile just good training advice you know even if they're not going to go home and start a colt yeah i mean i think i think there's so many things you can learn from 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 people that are good at cold starting or from this competition and i would like to think that the the last thing somebody would take away from it is a you know that i should start a cold in three hours and b that this stuff that i'm learning only applies to cold starting you know like first of all none of these people are starting horses in three hours except in like this demonstration format and b everything that they're doing with these colts you know the feel the timing you can apply this stuff to all the horses as well. And I think most like so much of the time when I get a training question um, or, you know, someone's got a real problem with their horse and they want to fix it. 
most of the time, the steps that I would personally take to fix it is from my cold starting program. And, you know, it just, it happens to all of us. It happens to my horses too, where, oh, something has fallen apart. And it turns out we need to go back to the yielding the hindquarters that I, we did on day one. We need to go back and review that and get that good. And now our leads are better. And uh, it's, uh, it's one of those things where everything is just related. And again, most of the time when you're stuck with a horse, the, the steps that it takes to fix it is usually can be found somewhere in those very basic first steps when, when you're training any horse. Yeah. And I think I'm just thinking here, as you, as you talk, when you talk about a problem, you know, when a horse, when you're teaching a horse, I guess if, if the horse is a good foundation and you're working with the horse, you're not fixing a problem. You're going, I'm going to teach my horse something new. I'm going to teach them to jump or leg yield or half pass or do shoulder in. And you're, you're introducing something gradually, but if there's a problem, I mean, my mind almost goes a hundred percent of the time. If there's a problem, that's to do, you know, if it's not physical, if it's not pain. But if there's a problem, that's to do with something that is we have to back up. Like it, it's a foundational thing. It means we we missed something, and the foundation's not strong enough. Exactly. There was a gap. There was yeah. a hole somewhere that that problem has now yes made that hole obvious. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. There was a hole, and and that hole was probably always there. Uh, but it just wasn't severe enough that we realized it or we recognized the importance of it. And now the hole has gotten bigger and now we're going, oh, now we got to deal with this. And I think, you know, the more, the more horses that I take to a higher level, the more it makes me realize how important the starting process is. Ooh, interesting. Because one of the something that somebody said we were doing an interview with someone a long long time ago that trains horses for police work yeah and she said the very first thing they do with every single horse they get in because they're all donated they're all second third fourth career horses so they obviously have lots of training she said they take they start from square one and pretend the horse has never been touched and they do every single step and she just said she they do that because regardless of how accomplished that animal is, there are going to be gaps and there are going to be holes and there are going to be thin spots in that horse's training. And they need to find those because obviously when you're a police horse, you don't want to discover the hole in the training while you're doing crowd control in the middle of a riot. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and I think I'd be interested to ask Mary, but I think for me, when I get a horse that's that's done, you know, even a three or a four star or a five star, if that horse is is new to me, I'm essentially gonna do that exact same thing. Like I'm gonna go through those steps pretty quickly, like check this, check this, check this, check this. How do they do with this? How do they do with this? How do they do with this? But I'm like, you know, when I get that horse in the barn, a horse could, you know, have jumped a Grand Prix and I'm gonna still spend the first few days on the ground checking all these boxes. Yeah, I, I'm exactly the same. You know, one, because I have had training horses that, quote unquote, just needs a tune up. And then <laughs> um, I saddle them and they broke in two. And I'm like, oh, okay, that is a little bit more than a tune up. And, you know, you don't <laughs> yeah. want to figure out. Yeah, you don't want to figure out that you can't saddle the horse when you're like in a concrete barn aisle and cross ties and you do up the girth and now everything's going insane. Um, but the, you know, the other thing is it could be that maybe this horse has some holes, but 
the other thing is everyone has, especially when it comes to cult starting their own checklist of, I have to have this horse doing X, Y, and Z before I feel safe enough to get on. And I know some guys that can, they're so good, um, on that horse's back, helping out a horse that they need very, very little groundwork, you know, just a few things here and there. Um, and I have a totally different list than, you know, the cult, you know, some other cult starter has. And so I want to make sure, um, you know, will this horse hit all the bullet points that I have to make sure that I'm going to be safe? Um, and, and, you know, and it's, it just gives the horse time to decompress. I ha- I have one in training that I just got in training and I, I spent three days just checking out the groundwork. And the first few days he was like really antsy, didn't want to stand still. And so I'm like, okay, well, we definitely need this groundwork. But a lot of that was just him settling down. And now that I'm on him and riding him, I'm like, oh, he actually knows a whole lot. But, you know, he hadn't been ridden in a while and he was at a new place. And so it's it's never a bad idea. I would rather, quote unquote, waste the time doing groundwork and realize, ah, he was fine than the other way around where I'm on the horse and I realize, OK, this is not going to work out really well. Yeah. I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, and some people think of it as like you're wasting time and they want to get riding. But, you know, honestly, where I'm at now, I probably get as much or more enjoyment out of a good groundwork session than a riding session. Me too. I love groundwork. And when I first started as a cult starter, I got into cult starting because I was working for other people and I wanted to ride the big fancy show horses and kind of looked, I looked down on the you know, the basic stuff. Cause I'm like, no, I, I already knew all this. I need to, I need to be on the show horses. Yeah. And, you know, then over time I realized, okay, this is valuable information and I'm learning a lot. I didn't know, but I still looked at groundwork as a way to, when can I just get on? Like how yeah. much, okay, you've done this groundwork. Now we can get on and going into the positive reinforcement training and looking at other things like in hand, you know, dressage, like the classical work and all of that. I find myself with a lot of horses now, like, okay, you have to get on today, but I'm, but I have, I'm having so much fun playing with them on the ground. And, um, but yeah, there really is no end to how much groundwork you can do. Can you tell me how you got into positive reinforcement training? Yeah. And, um, I got into it. I had been working as an assistant trainer for several years for, uh, you know, kind of natural horsemanship and then, and then in the reining industry. And when I left that, uh, world, I was pretty burnt out. Um, you know, at one point I was riding like 14 horses a day and then doing all the barn chores and just, I'd spent many years just working dawn till dusk and was handling so many horses daily that I didn't know their names half the time. And, I just got so burnt out. I knew I didn't want to quit horses, but there was kind of a time where I'm like, do I like horses? Do I even like this? Um, and also in a lot of those barns, um, some, there's some aggressive training that can go on and, and I've seen all sorts of stuff and I was just real, just kind of disheartened and, and burnout. And I decided, okay, I need to break down everything and start over. And I sort of went off the deep end and kind of looked into what I would call more woo-woo things. I, I looked into a program that it was complete liberty. Like you work your horse in a pasture and 
and you're not going to put a halter and lead rope on them. And, and I got some valuable information from that. But then I started thinking, okay, I, I, but I do still want to ride. I do still want to compete. And I had actually found out about clicker training or positive reinforcement training working for uh, one of the trainers I worked for. There was a book by Shauna Karish. Um, and I read it and I thought, this is interesting. And I can see that this works, but it looks kind of silly and tedious. And it, it seems like it would take forever to get on your horse if you did clicker training. But that kept that stuck out in my mind and I went back to it. And my light bulb moment with the positive reinforcement training was, you know, for some reason, when I first got into it, I thought it was only for teaching novelty stuff like tricks and things like that. Because you do see a lot of people will click or train a horse to like put a basketball in a hoop and fun things like that. But I saw trainers who were using it for like high level dressage. Um, there was one trainer in particular, I saw a video of her working with this horse and the horse was like in perfect collection with not a speck attack on it. And the horse just, that's just how it traveled. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I actually contacted this trainer and I'm like, how did you do that? And she tell, said, can you tell well, us who that was? I could not remember. It was not a well-known <laughs> trainer. It was just someone on YouTube, but I think they were using a lot of stuff from Alexandra Curlin, who, like I said, is probably my favorite. There's a lot of great trainers out there. Um, But I asked her, I'm like, how did you do it? And she said, uh, well, you just teach them to travel in balance and then they like it. So they keep doing it. And I I was like, no, that's not, that can't be the answer. Cause I had come from the world of we're checking horses back and using sidelines. And when we're riding, we're constantly like driving them up into the bridle. And we kind of had to remind these horses over and over, like get in a frame, get in a frame. And you're just really kind of pushing them to do that. And so for me to come from that world, to see a horse that just did it just for the sake of doing it, like he enjoyed it. It, it like completely blew my mind. And with the positive reinforcement training, I, I've been doing it for well over a decade, like consistently. And I still don't think I've hardly scratched the surface. There's still, I'm, I still consider myself a beginner because it's such a deep well of possibility of what you can do with your horse. And I get so excited. Like I'm working with a lot of my horses right now, just standing quietly next to them. And I get really excited over tiny changes I see in my horse, just standing still. Um, So I could geek about that for like another four hours. (laughs) (laughs) So Tick. Yeah. the, uh, The grand finale of road to the horse every year is the famous obstacle course. Yeah. Um, How are you preparing to be ready for the obstacle course? Um, None of there will, there will not be an elephant trap, a trocaner or a skinny on there. So there's going to be new stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, some of the stuff is, is stuff that is, is, stuff that I sort of train and I'm used to doing on a regular basis. Like you've got to go over poles and you've got to go over a little jump and you've got to open a gate and you got to, um, uh, like show them new things, like let them go over a tarp or through a Liverpool, you know? So those are all things I do with, you know, vending horses is go, you know, over a Liverpool, over a bank, over a ditch. So the, the concept is the same. 
Uh, probably the hardest thing I think for me that's the most uh, most that I'm going to be most green about is one of the two of the obstacles that they have every year is one of them is you have to pick up a rope and and swing it like a lasso a lariat and the other one is you've got to uh, pick up another rope that's attached to something like a little kid's car or or a three foot tall teddy bear and you've got to drag it behind you and those kinds of roping skills uh i don't really have and so that's going to be something i'm going to have to get used to uh, a little bit or just to kind of like maybe skip that obstacle or just kind of do the best <laughs> job I, I can with that one so are you prepared to get off your like, horse like, are you prepared to right? get off your horse and sing in an outhouse oh to sing in an outhouse yeah I'll, I, i'm a good singer Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready to go. So Mary, you had some advice on, on, on roping skills. Yes. So there's a lot of stuff you can do with the rope. If you're to help fill in for your horse, if you're not sure about it. Um, and, and, uh, you know, as far as any kind of obstacle that you're thinking, well, maybe I'll skip this. I would at definitely at least go up to the obstacle and interact with it in some way so that you get a score. Because uh, any kind of score is going to be better than a goose egg, than a complete zero when it comes to your averages, especially if it's a required obstacle. Um, so even if like you take your horse up to it, you know, it, you know, even if you are confident in your rope handling skills, but that colt is just not going to do it on that day. I'd at least try to ride up to and like pick up the lariat, like, look, we attempted it. Ha ha. And then go on. Um, because then you'll at least get something written down in that box, yeah. which can yeah, make true. all the difference when it comes down to the points. And, you know, if you can find someone in your area who, uh, who's really proficient in rope handling, um, that's one thing that I did when showing um, I, the ranch classes that I show when we often have to handle a rope. And there's a lot of things that I didn't know about with the lariat that you can do to help a horse that might be nervous. For instance, like if you're dragging, you can dally the rope and then pick up the rope with your like with your mm. free hand. So it's not like sitting on the horse's rump. Um, so you can, yeah, you know, sometimes you show up to a show and your horse is a little goosey with the rope and, um, you can still make that drag obstacle look really good and protect your horse at the same time. But I would get really good at like working your dallies and being able to pop your dallies off the saddle horn. If you're going to use a saddle horn. And yeah, I, um, I can tell you that there's a good chance I'm going to use a saddle horn, but there's a, almost no chance that I'm going to be dallying anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can just hold it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to be holding it. You know, with dallying, I'm just, I mean, maybe if I practice a lot between now and then, but it just feels to me like there's so much can go wrong. You know, you get, you can't undally fast enough. The horse gets it wrapped around behind the horse's bomb and you're facing the wrong way. You, it tightens up quick and you lose a finger. I mean, it just seems like, a lot can go wrong in that situation. Yes. Yeah, that is definitely true. And it's one of the reasons I have never really gone into like roping steers because I know that's way too fast for me to remember not to dally my hand to the saddle horn. Yeah, um, that sounds horrible. <laughs> the best tip I have for that is keep your thumb up when you dally. If you put thumb your thumb up. down, you will be losing your thumb. Well, possibly, but... <laughs> <laughs> Just like, yeah. I mean, you've got another thumb, if it, you know, if it gets down that's to true, that. That's but... <laughs> true. Then I, got, then I got to learn how to swing the rope left-handed too, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's okay. Fi final question today, Tick. We've taken up a lot of your time. Do yeah, you have no a pen? Do you have a pen wrangler pick 
pen wrangler picked out? Yeah, I got a, a friend of mine, uh, Nick Rivera from Wisconsin. He's going to be my pen wrangler. And then we're allowed three support crew that are going to be right down there. Maybe not next to the round pen, but on the floor with us and helping us pick the horse. And for that, I've got uh, Juliet Kane. I've got a friend of mine here in Citra, uh, Jake Birnbaum, who's also helping me a lot with preparing and roping skills. And then my wife, uh, Sinead, will be the third person. So there's going to be sort of a team of five of us that are going to work together and getting ready. Hicks team, are you going to have team t-shirts or, you know, something? <laughs> uh, that's that's a possibility. I'm not you got to have team t-shirts. You got to have swag. I'm trying to delegate that responsibility to somebody else and and uh, there you we'll go. see how that goes. Yeah. There you go. Send that to your marketing team. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I know her. I'll have an in. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Tick, for stopping by and spending a little time with, to, with us today. And uh, best of luck at Road to the Horse. And maybe as we get a little bit closer, we'll have you back on again to chat a little bit about how it's going. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Cut. Perfect. Woohoo. Hooray. Mary, where are you in Texas? I'm in Kemp, so I'm southeast of Dallas by about an hour. Do you get horses to start? Um, I haven't lately just because I have got so many of my own projects filling up my stalls. Um, but if you're looking for colts, I could probably put the word out there. Yeah, I'm trying to come out in january to texas i've got a couple people who said that they might be able to find some clothes to start i don't have a sure thing yet so i'm going to follow up with these people but um you know if i'm not able to find anything i might take you up on that yeah yeah i got a couple but couple buddies that uh do like ranch horses and and cow horses and you know they might have a a group that they're interested in um so i could definitely put word out Cool. What when you're training? What percentage, if you could put a percentage on it, of the time would you say you're doing clicker training versus something else? So with my own horses, it's different with every horse. I've got a Mustang in training right now who is this big, quiet, lovable lunk, and I could like, I could explode fireworks in his stall, and he'd be like, I don't care. So. Pressure with him, I found myself to where I just was like having a kick and prod and poke on him. And he was like, nah, I don't know. And so he is almost entirely positive reinforcement training because that's what works for him. Mm -hmm. And then when I get like a Mustang in for a makeover, if it's got any kind of time constraint on it, I will do like traditional type training. And then maybe I'll bring in the clicker for one or two things that I want that horse doing. Um, With my horse, Remy. I'm uh, taking this time before the next show season to rebuild some stuff with the clicker, like how he carries himself in the ranch classes. One of the things I'm going to work on with him is actually getting his ears forward in our pleasure class. Cause for some reason he likes to pin his ears when we're trotting and loping on the rail and we lose points for that. So, um, so I'll use it to reteach things or um, it, it really depends on every horse. I do it every day with every horse but some horses will only get it for one or two things and some horses it'll be like the bulk of what i'm doing with them i love that that's a really good answer oh thank you i love that i mean i i just think that you know that's you know i i can i have a lot of respect for people that are doing different things like you know that they only do positive or they only do this or they only do that but by 
the personal way that I like is is sort of like that. Like you're really got a big toolbox and you're adjusting for every situation. I love that. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's it can be hard to kind of straddle that line because you will get people that are very dogmatic on either side who are like, oh, I never do this or I always do this. And, yeah. you know, I kind of learned to brush that internal and external criticism yeah. aside and, yeah. um, you know, try to try to work it all together. And for me, especially um, when I feel my quote unquote cowboy skills have come to an end, like if I have a really troubled horse and I know that someone else could like get a lariat out there and get this horse sorted out in a few minutes. And I know that mm, that's not, I'm not good enough to do that. The clicker training always works. It always works. It may take a little longer, maybe a little bit more teeter, uh, tedious, but it always, it always works. Yeah. Yeah. There you have it. That, that just falls back onto that whole read the horse. Read the horse. Whether whether you've got time constraints and 5,000 people watching or not, reading the horse is where it all starts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it's where it starts and where it finishes. And it's also something that you can always get better at. It. I mean, it's just one of those things that you look back and you've learned something new or some detail and you're just like, you're like, I can't believe I didn't know this last year, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> crazy. Yep. Yep. Well, there we go. Well, thanks again, Tick. And if you want to find out what Tick is up to, you can go to his website, copperlineequestrian.com. And if you want to get his book, In the Middle Are the Horsemen, you can find it at all major book retailers. Horse and Rider On Demand allows you to train smarter, not harder. Our training video collection featuring some of the industry's top Western professionals like Bud Lyon, Cody Crow, Ryan Rushing, and more can help you perfect your horsemanship and improve your performance in the arena. Get access to hundreds of videos and learn more about events like ranch horse versatility, reining, working cow horse, ranch riding, and more for just $14.99 a month. Watch anywhere, anytime. Horse and Rider On Demand can be streamed from any smart device. Visit ondemand.horseandrider.com to start your seven-day free trial. That's ondemand.horseandrider.com. And now it's the time in the show for our listener questions. These questions are submitted by our superpower listeners, our auditors. If you want to know how to become an auditor so that you too can submit questions to Mary's show, head on over to Horse Radio Network and look for the Become an Auditor banner. It's floating around the page somewhere. I'm not going to say where it's at because it changes every other year or so, and you might be listening to this show in 2026. So what is our question and who is it from? Okay. Uh, we have a question from Gwen. Uh, she said, my horse hates the mounting block. I taught him to come and line himself up and says he makes cranky faces, pins his ears, swishes his tail, sometimes back up, backs up. And it's only when I touch him uh, from the mounting block. Interesting. Uh, we have to kind of desensitize him for a few minutes to get through this and then he'll calm down and stand still and it's fine for mounting and we'll stand at the mounting block comfortably as long as I want after mounting. He's relaxed, does flexions, can put his head down. It's just before mounting, he has a problem. And in parentheses, he won't tolerate ground mounting at all. So that's not a workaround. He gets regular Cairo and body work has had a saddle fitter, having another saddle fitter out next week. We've tried clicker training, grooming, doing other things at the mounting block. Uh, there hasn't been very much progress in the last nine months. 
Um, she doesn't feel like he's in pain. Um, body worker says he feels fine. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm reading through all of this, making sure that I'm not missing anything else important. Um, she thinks maybe in a past life, uh, he had a poorly fitting saddle. Maybe there's still some kind of lingering PTSD from that. Uh, so that's a really interesting question and, and a tricky problem. Um, so let's say that it is not a health body soreness related thing. It still very much could be, it sounds like the, uh, the questioner has like done their due diligence and then some to figure out if there's anything that might be troubling the horse. Um, you never know. There could still be something lingering, but let's, let's assume that we fixed whatever problems there were. We're good to go clean bill of health. And we still have this issue. Um, so sometimes when you have had a horse that maybe has had a bad experience, either due to something that's happened in the past or some soreness that used to be there and it's not anymore, um, and they relate it to a certain cue or a certain piece of equipment or a certain behavior, um, that thing can then become, quote unquote, poisoned for that horse. So even though this horse is fine. He shouldn't be sore. He's okay, but he's still acting like this. It, it can often be due to that kind of poisoned connotation they have with it. Um, so in cases like that, and I know that she, Gwen has tried clicker training, and I know someone in the comments where she posts the question has mentioned clicker training. That is probably where I would go with this. Um, and one thing that I have learned about clicker training, especially recently, is however much you think you're breaking down a behavior to make it more digestible for the horse to understand, it can be broken down even more. Um, this is one of those issues that probably isn't going to be solved overnight in a few lessons. And I know that you've been dealing with this for many months now. Um, but I, I think several sessions with clicker training with the mounting block and really breaking it down and seeing where is, where's the exact point where your horse starts to go south. Um, so I had an issue with one of my Mustangs on the mounting block. He, um, would line right up to the mounting block, no problem. But then when I would get on he would get really antsy. Like he didn't walk off, but he would throw a bunch of behaviors he already knew at me as soon as I got on his back. Like he'd flex his head this way and he'd flex his head that way. And then he'd back up. And he just seemed really busy in those first few moments that I got on him. And so even though like this is a horse I'm riding around and he gets on the mounting, he gets up to the mounting block and he stands still. Um for while I'm getting on that kind of behavior that he was throwing as soon as I got on, I wanted to really go back and work on that and erase it. Um, so what I did with that horse is I started a clicker training exercise that I do with every horse. And most clicker trainers have this exercise in their program. And it's where I'm standing quietly beside my horse and, um, 
most of the times in clicker training, it's used as a way to teach the horse how to behave around food. So you should be able to stand next to your horse with a bag of cookies and they should keep their head straight. Some people will have their horse turn the opposite direction with their head neck. Some people like their horse to lower their head. I like my horse, you know, pretty much just with their head neck straight and in balance. Um, I don't really like them to turn their head this way or that way or up or down, just, just kind of a natural headset. Um, so I start there with that horse and I will build on that particular behavior until that horse can stand still for a very long time while I'm standing by their shoulder. Um, and I do that again for the food manners part, but where it really comes in handy is teaching your horse to be calm and for that calmness to be their default behavior. So when I stand by my horse's shoulder and I clasp my hands in front of my body, that becomes a cue for my horse to relax and just stand. Um, so that's step one. That That's where I would start. And that's where I started with this, the particular horse that I had at the mounting block. Um, then I worked on this behavior with the horse standing next to the mounting block. Um, so I would stand on the mounting block facing the same direction my horse is facing. So I'm standing next to my horse facing forward and my horse is standing beside me facing forward. And I start from there. Can you stand next to me on the mounting block quietly? Um, let's stop. Let's stop there. Because we started this whole conversation with how far can we break it down for a horse who already has mounting block issues would be practical to start with standing near the mounting block, a little nearer in the mounting block on both sides of the mounting block so that the mounting block is in the vicinity, but the horse is not anticipating the cue to come to the mounting block, which seems to be the precursor to the behavior we don't want. So break it down so that being near the mounting block is no longer a trigger then you standing on the mounting lock is no longer a trigger. Okay. So I, I felt like I, I skipped that step because that's where I would be going. Okay. Let's just see if we can stand near it. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah. Yeah. But no, that's a great point. And I would look for the point in this whole mounting process where the horse says, no, I don't want to do it. So like if you get... If you're 10 feet away from the mounting block and your horse is already like trying to turn away and pinning its ears, then you need to start there. And, you know, we're going to stand here and be quiet. And then we'll take a step forward, a step forward, a step forward, and so on. Um, You always want to know where the threshold is, where your horse is saying, no, I don't want to do that. And then you don't want to cross it. Uh, You want to get them up to it and get them comfortable. And then you can slowly push the goal line a little bit further and a little bit further. So. Once I get to the mounting block, um, then what I might do, so I practice, can I just stand on the mounting block with you? And we do that, you know, for, you know, several moments. We build up to where we can stand just quietly, you and I next to the mounting block. Um, And where your horse might start to go back into that old behavior is when I start trying to mount the horse. Um, so instead of just going from standing next to him on the mounting block, then just getting on, um, I will go from standing in my neutral position 
And then I'm going to turn to where I'm facing the horse's saddle. And then I'm going to go back to neutral. And if I was able to do all those things and he still stayed quiet with a pleasant look on his face, I'm going to click and treat. So again, I start with this kind of neutral position facing forward. Now I'm going to turn towards the horse's saddle and then go back to my neutral position. If he handled that whole sequence and he was calm, click and treat. And I'll do that a couple of times, make sure that's pretty good. Then what I, I'm going to tack something onto that whole training loop. So I go from I'm standing forward and quietly next to you. Now I'm going to turn toward the saddle. Now I'm going to put both my hands on the saddle. And then I'm going to go right back to neutral. So that neutral position, again, is facing forward, hands clasped in front of me. And if he let me do all of that, then I click and treat. So then I'll go from neutral, face the saddle, hands on the saddle, then back to neutral. If he's great, click and treat. So now I'm going to add on another link to the chain. So as long as he's, it's all staying up under threshold up to this point, and he's he's staying nice and pleasant and quiet and calm, then I can move on. If not, then I need to stay where I am or even back up a little bit more. Um, so maybe the next step I do is I stand straight forward in my neutral position. Then I go to face the horse hands on the saddle. And now I'm going to put one foot in the stirrup, but I'm not going to put any weight in the stirrup. I'm just placing my foot in the stirrup, do all of that, and then go back to neutral, click and treat. And then, you know, work on that and then go from neutral, face the horse, hands on the saddle, foot in the stirrup, put a little weight in the stirrup, and then go back to neutral. So you can see how you just break this down over and over. And what you're doing is you're rebuilding this behavior, but you are also doing this on a very high rate of reinforcement. It's lots and lots and lots of clicks and treats. And you're trying to erase away all the bad juju that horse feels um, when he's by the mounting block. And in the beginning, it might be pretty challenging for him to stay still and quiet and relaxed for even a moment or two. And you just, you stay with them and you just gentle repetition with that over and over and over again. Um, but the more you build that good, solid history of reward, 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 they, their feelings toward that mounting block are going to change over time. There you go. And since this is a horse with a, a an ingrained behavior, that this is a very solid behavior from his point of view. Um, and you get you get started, and the minute you stand up on the mounting, because I'm I'm envisioning how it can go wrong. Okay, the minute I stand up on top of the mounting block, the behavior returns. Um, something you might be able to try is go through the whole process without the saddle on the horse. Because you can reach over and put your hands where the saddle's going to be and back. And once you reach that point where, oh, this is working great, start from the beginning, step one, and go through the exact same whole process again with the saddle on as a backup plan if the whole thing's working great, working great, working great, until I stand up on the mounting block in my neutral position, I turn, he knows what's going to happen next. But by taking the saddle off, you might change sufficient number of criteria that the horse is not going to anticipate and go to that go-to behavior. Yeah. And I, I would also, to back it up from, from where I started, um, you know, doing it as part of my daily groundwork to where um, 
maybe I'll walk my horse around the arena. We'll stop at the mounting block, click treat, and then walk off again and just let them know, oh, oh we're not yeah. we're not getting on right Good now. Good idea. Yeah, because um, you only practice getting on once and getting off once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I will do yeah. a lot. I have like two or three mounting blocks, and I like to uh, walk around to different mounting blocks. Be like, oh, here's a mounting block. Click treat. Oh, here's another mounting block. Click treat. Oh, here's another <laughs> mounting block. Click treat. And pretty soon you will see them change from, oh God, the mounting block to, oh my God, another mounting block. Um, <laughs> actually, I was on my big lovable doofus Dougal today. Uh, he was the Mustang I mentioned to take about the, the horse that I'm doing, mostly clicker training. And I can't leave the mounting block in the middle of the arena when I'm riding Dougal because he has grown so in love with the mounting block that he wants to just take me to the mounting block every two seconds. And today I was trying to get him to canter and he's like, I really don't want to canter. I want to go to the mounting block. And he actually ran over the mounting block. Um, <laughs> because he's like, I'd rather, I just want to be on this mounting block. Um, so I, I almost did it a little too much with him. I need to get him to enjoy the canter more and the mounting block. <laughs> you a need to put less. the mounting block way far away and canter towards it. <laughs> yeah. If he sees it in the middle of the arena, he's like, that's where we're going. Um, so yeah, there's always something to work on. Yeah. Always something. Well, that's about it for today. We've had a great time chit-chatting about all things horse, all things training. And thank you again to Tick for stopping by. We will put a link to Tick's website and his book in the show notes for today's page. Where If people want to appropriately stalk you online, have you come out to a clinic, ask you questions about training their horse, or get some of your clever artwork, where can they find you? You can find me on Facebook, Mary Kitts Miller Horsemanship, or my mom and I's company, uh, where we do the artwork, and that is Troublemaker Trading Company. Dun, da, da. Horses in the Morning will be back again tomorrow with more fun and games. Bye-bye. <laughs>